Hello and welcome to episode 16 of PathPod. This is our next PathPod News Edition, and today our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, will speak with Dr. Jan Hang of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Dr. Vanda Torres of Massachusetts General Hospital about breast pathology and pathophysiology in the setting of gender-affirming hormonal therapy. Dr. Torres can be found on Twitter at VandaTorosMD, and our host, Dr. Pittman, can be found on Twitter at Mayor Pitt. Now here's our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello, and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. This week, the World Health Organization warned that the number of reported daily cases of the novel coronavirus, known as COVID-19, continue to rise at an alarming pace. More than 7 million people have fallen ill with the virus. Amidst the pandemic, we are also experiencing, and participating in, sustained protests that began in response to the homicide of Mr. George Floyd at the hand of law enforcement in Minnesota over two weeks ago, but which have grown to encompass an entire movement against systemic racism and police brutality. That these protests are carrying over into June, which is Pride Month in the United States and Canada, seems fitting since the very notion of Pride Week and Pride Month began with protesters who wouldn't back down. On June 28, 1969, New York City police officers used the laws that existed against homosexuality and a search warrant to justify a raid on the Stonewall Inn, a popular LGBTQ bar. Queer women were shoved forcefully into cop cars. Transgender and gender nonconforming individuals were arrested for wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. And some patrons, who were fed up by discrimination and, yes, police brutality, began to fight back. The protests that erupted that night lasted for six days and brought out thousands upon thousands of LGBTQ plus individuals and their supporters. Although certainly not the first protest on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community, the events at Stonewall brought visibility to a problem that many heterosexual cisgender individuals had never considered. At the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in 1970, major U.S. cities had parades that were a combination of celebration and political savvy, calling attention to the realities of LGBTQ life in a heteronormative world. Since that time, the LGBTQ community in the United States has made great strides towards visibility and equality, including the ability to marry and adopt children in all 50 states. The fight continues, however. LGBTQ plus workers can still be fired in 28 states for being themselves, and many states have, or have tried to pass, laws that limit the ability for transgender individuals to receive the gender-affirming health care that they need. In honor of Pride Month, and in recognition that protests have power, we at PathPod News Edition want to highlight work being done in the realm of LGBTQ plus health this June. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Jan Hang, an assistant professor of pathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, an affiliate of the Harvard Medical School System in Boston. Dr. Hang leads a multidisciplinary team that studies breast cancer in her translational research laboratory. Her most recent work looks at the impact of gender-affirming hormonal therapy on breast physiology and breast cancer risk. Dr. Hang, welcome to PathPod News Edition. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for having me. Uh, So first off, I wanted to ask you, how did you wind up in Boston studying breast cancer? What's your career path been like so far? 
Uh, my undergraduate was actually in medical laboratory science, where I really enjoy doing diagnostics or you know working in a diagnostic lab to support uh, the doctors for their clinical care. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to do a PhD because I thought I could achieve a bit more with a PhD in terms of setting up diagnostic tests and having the ability to implement it into a lab. So I did a PhD and I did it in pregnancy diagnostics where okay. I was trying to identify biomarkers in the cervical vagina fluid to predict preterm birth. Okay. So I finished my PhD in Australia at the University of Melbourne and at the strong encouragement of my mentors to do an international postdoc. This is a big thing in Australia. So I ended up in University of Toronto, Mount Sinai Hospital, and I did my postdoctoral fellowship there again to look for biomarkers to predict preterm birth. And this time I was working to see if I can find a signature in the maternal blood to predict preterm birth. And after I finished that, um, at, at the time, the way things were going in the scientific world where, you know, big data, you know, I was working right. on, I was working on proteomics, I was working on uh, microarray data, and I was hampered by not able to properly analyze my data. So I then decided to move to a cancer space because bioinformatics is more established in the cancer space. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I found this new training position at Beth Israel Deaconess to do breast cancer and uh, computational biology. And that's how I ended up here in uh, America. <laughs> so your interests sound like they really center on biomarkers and signatures that, that can then be used and translated into some sort of clinical care. And how did that interest lead you to your current work involving transgender patients and um, their risk of breast cancer and how testosterone acts on breast tissue? So my team has been leading um, a digital medical image analysis platform. Mm -hmm. So I was building this eight, uh, artificial intelligence platform to see if I can uh, read a, you know, a slide of breast histopathological tissue and predict if a person is going to be at risk of breast cancer or not. Okay. Wow. And these slides, these slides were all um, part of the nurse's health study uh -huh. and they were all benign breast disease uh, tissue slides. Okay. And so in building that, one of my platform was to actually use the computer to quantitate lobular atrophy or in cis women's uh, health terms, it's lobular involution. Involution, you know? so, right. Right. So the more involution you have, the lower your breast cancer risk. Mm -hmm. And doing that work, it's very time consuming for pathologists like yourself, because imagine how many slides you have to screen and count the lobules, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we make a computer system that can do it automatically. That sounds amazing. And then, <laughs> so I did, I, we built that and we, we published that. And I went to my breast pathologist colleague, Dr. Gabrielle Baker, in our department of pathology. And I said to her, hey, Gabrielle, I made this platform, but I want to apply it to more um, scenarios. You know, it's what, what other studies can I do with it? Sure. And she said, Jen, do you know that we get a lot of transgender breast uh, samples in our department? And, you know, because they're transgender, a lot of what she sees is a lobular atrophy. And she's like, maybe sure. you can do something about it. That's when I first heard about bigger clinical efforts of the hospital. Right. 
And then, you know, then I chat to my breath oncologist because we, you know, we all work together. And I told her about my platform and she was like, Jen, maybe you can help us with this uh, case review that we're writing. This is Dr. Gerbert Wolf, a department mm-hmm. of medicine. She's like, I just managed two transgender patients that are here for breast cancer care. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I got involved. And then, you know, as I read more, I realized there's very little done in this space. Very little. Yeah. And I'm like, we should do something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love uh, that. I love that collaborative nature of you all coming together and figuring out a, a way to apply your uh, platform. Right. right. And what we already know about cisgender women to this right. other patient population. I, I work with brilliant colleagues. So, you know, they tell me all this stuff. And it's like, oh, wow. And, <laughs> and, and then we move things forward. So before we dive into your particular cohort of patients that are undergoing this female to male gender affirming surgery, we should probably talk a little bit about breast cancer and transgender individuals overall. What do we know about breast cancer in transgender individuals? Yes. So a lot of studies today, um, the follow-up cohorts of most of these studies of understanding the risk of breast cancer in the transgender community has been about 10 years, 10 to 15 years. So relatively mm-hmm. short follow-ups. Okay. So most recently, um, the one of the biggest paper that's been published was by the Dutch colleagues at the University of Amsterdam Medical Center. I think so. Yes. And um, what they found was, so let's start with transgender females mm-hmm. taking estrogen, uh, they, their breast cancer risk is about 50 times higher than a cisgender male. Okay. But still lower than a cisgender female. Okay. Right. So then for transgender males who are taking testosterone, their risk is still much lower than a cisgender female. Okay. So I think the conclusion of that is that the risks are not very high. But so these are all epidemiological studies at the moment. Mm-hmm. And no one has really done much um, molecular work, which is what we're trying to Right, for knowing. And just for our listeners, in case they want to look up this article, I believe we're both talking about the 2019 British Medical Journal article. Um, Correct. From, for this large cohort in the Dutch population. Okay. That's so, right. Yeah. So is it thought that the the change in risk for these individuals is due to the hormonal therapy that they're taking? So them taking these therapies, these are external factors, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we do need studies where we include innate risk mm-hmm. factors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happens if you are biologically born assigned as male and you have the BRCA1 mutation, but you don't know that because you are male, no one screens you for that. And then you take um, high doses of estrogen therapy. How does that influence your risk compared right. to somebody who has no BRCA mutation and um, takes estrogen? Right. Um, and I know my colleague, the Dutch colleague that I was just talking about, the BMJ, mm-hmm. they told me, you know, as practicing endocrinologists, so little is known that even if the patient is BRCA positive, you know, they still prescribe estrogen. It's, um, I think clinically, it's prescribing the medicine does more good than harm right. for gender affirming. So you particularly 
thought it was important. We were talking about some of these these risk factors. You thought it was really important to collect data about these non-modifiable risk factors in your patient cohort. What sort of risk factors did you make sure and pull out from the medical records of your patients? I, you know, pull out all the reproductive history, you know, mm-hmm. whether you've been pregnant, have you breastfed, how old were you when you had your first menstrual period, um, your family history, you know, did anybody, did first degree, second degree relative with breast cancer or ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. did you have a previous um, benign breast disease diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, so all these fa- um, non-modifiable factors that I pull out from the medical records. Okay. And these, these are things that I needed to, so for subsequent analysis to truly investigate if hormones are affecting um, the changes in the breast so that I can account for these in my uh, statistical analyses. Sure. So you knew about all these risk factors because you'd been doing work on cisgender women, and now you're focusing on transgender men and gender nonconforming individuals who are masculine presenting who have been taking high dose testosterone, the vast majority of them. What can you tell us, because most of us aren't going to be familiar with this, about how much testosterone do people take? How do they take it? So transgender male and masculine presenting or, or masculine centered non-conforming mm-hmm. individuals, they take testosterone to achieve testosterone levels comparable to cisgender men. Okay. And testosterone levels in cisgender men is tenfold higher than a cisgender woman. So that's substantial testosterone that needs to be taken. That's a lot of testosterone that you need to take to achieve that level. Yeah. And so for these individuals, there are many ways to administer testosterone. And they could either be a patch or Mm -hmm. gel. And they can also inject themselves uh, with testosterone ethanate or cypionate. Okay. And there's also another thing that is called a testosterone palette where you can implant it under your skin and it lasts for three to four months. But um, as far as I know, the palette is not um, available in the U.S. or not routinely prescribed in the USA. It's, it's okay. a very common method in Europe, okay. but not in the U.S. Okay, so your, your current cohort are transgender men, masculine-centered, gender nonconforming individuals. They're taking high-dose testosterone, and then they come to Beth Israel Deaconess to undergo this chest contouring surgery. And I saw in your recent article that there was a big jump in the incidence of chest contouring surgery that happened kind of in the middle of your cohort collection in around 2017. Can you explain a little bit what happened there? What caused that big jump from having just a few a year to like a hundred a year? So I think the main explanation for that uh, is the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. which uh, which then allows, or I don't know if the words allow, but um, so insurance uh, insurance companies uh, can reimburse for mm-hmm. gender affirming surgeries, such as the chest contouring surgery. Okay. Um, so that's the that's a big jump from I think we had about forty cases in two thousand fifteen, and then when the act was signed in twenty sixteen, our numbers have gone up to seventy cases a year to now consistently hundred cases a year. Yeah. Also, just to point it out that um, BIDMC is an affiliate of the Fenway Institute, which mm-hmm. is really the 
is one of the leading um, LGBTQIA plus center, care center in the country. And so a lot of you know, patients at the Fenway, if they want to do a surgery or any medical um, procedures, you know, they're referred to the IDMC. And that, that, that could also, you know, explain why we have such nice oh, okay. big numbers and why, uh, our, why BIDMC or what I'm trying to do is it's possible because of the, the patients that come to us. Sure. The patient population that you serve. Interesting. And so these patients undergo this chest contouring surgery. And then of course that tissue goes to surgical pathology and you've worked very closely with these surgical pathologists. You mentioned Dr. Baker, um, right. looking at the histology of this breast tissue and in particular starting out with the lobular involution that we were talking about at the beginning. I'm curious if there were actual incidental lesions that have been identified in this cohort of patients. Now my cohort is 446 patients and uh, we are about to publish paper. We found 11 high-risk lesions. These high-risk lesions were atypical ductal and atypical lobular hyperplasia, which is um, which is known to be linked to increased risk of breast cancer mm -hmm. in cisgender women. Mm -hmm. What is interesting was all these 12 patients have been taking testosterone for a long time, so between okay. 10 months and 65 months. So um, I should say that the, the aim of the study was really to see how um, these high-dose long-term testosterone use affect, affected breast morphology. And so my two cohorts, my two study groups were patients taking testosterone and patients who did not take testosterone. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a lot of studies did not discern. Oh, that's grouped, interesting. They just so, grouped everybody because they were transgender. Right. And so you're specifically teasing out subgroups between your transgender and your gender nonconforming population. It's between those that take testosterone versus those that did not. I think this is a better comparison to truly elucidate the effect of testosterone use yeah. on breast morphology. That's excellent. Oh, and I wanted to point this out. You know, we might get criticized. Like, why didn't you, did you consider using cisgender women who undergo reduction mammoplasty? Like, why is that not your control group? Mm -hmm. I thought about that really hard, but I thought using just a population of those who use and those that did not use testosterone, I also control for other factors like these group of people or the two groups uh, are going to be more similar in their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that cisgender women will not do is chest binding. So I can, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to control for is there a mechanical impact of chest binding on the on the breast tissue. Oh, how interesting! That's so a very that's important why, consideration. That's why yeah. I chose to do, you know, just transgender population and those that take testosterone versus those that do right. not take testosterone. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that chest contouring surgery, there is some breast tissue that can remain in these patients. And so if we are to find lesions, there's still a small risk for these patients, yes? Yeah, that's right. Our surgeons, which we have two main surgeons that do this surgery, so Dr. Adam Tobias and Dr. Richard Bartlett, they have told me that when they do this surgery, they do remove as much tissue as possible, mm -hmm. uh, just leaving sufficient to scalp best. Sure. And the risk of transgender men, uh, why they are you know, lower than cisgender women, uh, can be explained 
by the removal of chest tissue. Sure. Then, then the question remains, so if you are trans, transgender male and you do not do chest removal, chest contouring surgery, mm -hmm. then what is your risk? Then what is the optimal method by a radiologist to do your screening? However, it is challenging, emotionally challenging. Right. We need to come up with culturally sensitive um, screening protocols. Right. To do that. And sure. if we can, if we can um, you know, further understand breast cancer risk in the transgender population, so not, it was going to be different from cisgender women. Sure. So if we can find out the breast cancer risk in the, cis, the transgender population, then, you know, that will help. You know, if somebody, if a doctor manages your care and like you have absolutely no risk factors as a transgender person, then maybe, you know, your screening protocols is going to be slightly different than if you are high risk. Do I make sense? Oh, yeah. No, that makes total yeah. sense because there's a, a, a lot of, um, as you said, like emotional processing that would go into undergoing testosterone therapy, undergoing chest contouring surgery, being a man, and then mm -hmm. being told by a physician that you still need a mammogram like that. That would exactly. be very jarring. Uh, it's a very delicate thing that we have to manage um, and find a, a way to do it culturally sensitive and right. supportive. Right. Supportive and do the best thing for our patients. You know, at the beginning we were talking about your interest in biomarkers. And so now you have this tissue and I'm sure you're continuing to collect both patients and tissue. What are some of the questions or what are some of the ways you're hoping to apply your biomarker expertise to the tissue that's being collected on these patients? So we were looking to be able to do some molecular work on these patients' samples. Mm -hmm. So um, um, to see how testosterone regulates um, breast tissue mm -hmm. and, you know, and determine if the way these tissues have been regulated, are they expressing like, um, tumor associated signatures. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can that then, you know, be something that we have to be aware of that maybe this will turn carcinogenic or this mm -hmm. patient is more likely to express this tumor signature versus somebody that didn't. And that's one mm -hmm. way of applying biomarkers. And actually more of our work were, were going to be driven for, towards trans, um, transgender female because mm -hmm. I think the risk of breast cancer now is it's something to be determined and to be and to be understood especially mm -hmm. if you're taking um, injecting themselves with estrogen and um, I think the one of the interesting thing about transgender female and understanding the bio you know finding biomarkers and understanding their risk is that they're not going to go through menopause like regular cisgender women so yes. they're going to take so they're going to take estrogen However, as long as they would like to, mm -hmm. that, you know, benefits them. Sure. And how does that put them at risk of breast cancer or, you know, compared to cisgender women? There's just mm -hmm. so much to figure out and, and be able to predict better for these patients what right, may be right. in their future. Uh, thank you so much for talking with well, us today. You. This has been uh, fascinating. Again, I... I I have to give a shout out to my team, which I've already mentioned in, but I also need to mention uh, Dr. Valerie Fine-Zachary, and she's actually the breast um, imaging 
director over at Fedway Clinics, uh, breastfeeding for transgender patients. It seems like you've arrived at a, at a place where you're going to be able to be very productive and learning all sorts of new things that are going to help us be able to take care of these patients better. Uh, yes. Next we have with us Dr. Vanda Toros. Dr. Toros is an instructor of pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital. She completed fellowships in both breast and cytopathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Torres, welcome to News Edition, and thank you for taking time to speak with us today. So we just heard from Dr. Jan Hang, who has a cohort of over 400 transgender men and gender nonconforming patients who have undergone chest contouring surgery. Dr. Hang is working to catalog the changes in breast physiology secondary to high-dose testosterone therapy. And you have analyzed some of the histopathologic findings in over 100 of these patients who had surgery from 2014 to 2017 and published your findings in Modern Pathology last year. So first off, I was wondering, what are the demographics of the patients who you saw? Are we looking at older patients, younger patients? Did all of them take androgen therapy before their surgical procedure? Things like that. Yeah, so we had um, 148 patients in our study cohort. The majority of our patients were in their 20s and 30s. Okay. Um, And and the average age was about 28 years old um, for the study cohort. Um, However, there was a wide range in age, um, and it ranged from about 18 to 60 years of age. So you're seeing kind of the full spectrum of ages there. Exactly. And regarding the androgen therapy itself, um, the majority of our patients, actually 88%, um, did undergo androgen therapy prior to their gender reassignment surgery. These patients underwent therapy from anywhere between three months to over five years prior to surgery. And the average time of therapy prior to their surgery was about 21 months. Okay. So you were actually then able to really see what androgen therapy was doing in a histologic sense to this breast tissue. Yes. And what were you looking for when you went into the study? What sort of histologic findings were you specifically going to have a checklist or an Excel spreadsheet and be like, yes, we see this. No, we don't see this. Yeah. So it's sort of funny because that's one of the reasons why we first um, thought to investigate this group of patients. Um, when I was doing my pathology residency and then my fellowship um, with my mentor, Dr. Stuart Schnitt, we really started receiving more and more of these specimens for examination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we really did notice that they looked different, you could sort of say, from other reduction mammoplasties. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the most notable changes was the lobular involution seen in these cases. Okay. Um, so we thought we had um, a sort of unique perspective because we had a relatively large population of these patients. Um, and it was an opportunity for us to investigate this usually underrepresented group um, to see if perhaps we needed to modify our practice, really, okay. um, in order to better deliver care. So, for instance, we were wondering, should we um, you know, be submitting more sections for these cases um, as compared to other reduction mammoplasties? So that's really sort of how this project had first stemmed. So going into it, degree of lobular involution was one of the things we were interested in. Um, and that really did tie in with what are the effects of androgen therapy? So, and what effects does it have on the breast? Um, the effects of androgen therapy on the breast are complex um, and not totally well understood as there's a complex sort of interplay between 
um, androgens and estrogens, <laughs> both in terms of um, exogenous and endogenous production. Um, so prior studies um, have shown mixed results regarding their relationship between androgen administration and development of breast cancer. Um, so okay. therefore, this study was also an opportunity for us to study this unique patient population um, to also explore this as more as well. Okay, and you mentioned, did you need to modify your practice? So were there differences in how you dealt with these mastectomies or chest contouring reduction surgical specimens from your transgender patients versus a typical cisgender woman reduction mammoplasty or mastectomy in the gross room? Yeah, so actually our, our protocols then and now are still pretty similar. So we haven't really modified it much. Again, this was a very, it, it's a relatively small cohort. So mm -hmm. it was hard to really make too much out of it. I feel like we really do need more studies before we start modifying our protocols, you know, completely. So right now, we're still really just submitting um, for reduction mammoplasty for cassettes total. Okay, so same, same for both um, right, right. cisgender women and, and transgender men. And then what were some of the most common histopathologic changes that you found when you were looking at these slides? We mentioned the lobular inflammation. Sounds like that was pretty common and something that you noticed even before you started your study. Right, yeah. So as we mentioned um, before, lobular atrophy was one of the things that we, we had noticed. Um, and that's defined, um, for those who may not be breast pathologists or <laughs> familiar, it's, it's um, defined as a decrease in the number and size of the asini um, per lobule. Okay. Um, it's usually associated with like a dense collagenized stroma. Okay. Um, so that was a pretty common finding in our cohort. Um, we actually also did like a semi-quantitative sort of assessment of it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we deg we um, had assessed the degree of lobular involution in these cases, and we found that there was at least mild lobular atrophy seen in almost three-fourths of our cases, so the, the majority of cases. And also we, we had some additional findings. We did find that the quality of the stroma tended to be more sort of fibrous in quality, mm -hmm. And we also did catalog a wide spectrum of both benign and atypical histologic alterations. Okay. Um, so of those, an interesting finding was that 41% of our cases had areas resembling the fibrous or inactive phase of gynecomastia. Oh, interesting. Um, and also interestingly, so you know, in terms of atypical lesions, really only six of our 148 patients or about 4% had atypical lesions. Okay. Um, we had a comparison group um, that we had included of 50 reduction manplasty cases. And although, although in that sort of comparison group, there were no atypical lesions, there wasn't any statistical difference in atypical okay. lesions between our study cohort and that comparison group. So it's hard to make too much really out of it at this point. Sure. But at least in your population, the incidence of these atypical lesions was low. Exactly. And then I was just thinking, so you were seeing this very fibrous stroma, and we know that not all patients, not all men who are on this androgen therapy choose to undergo surgery. So some transgender men will only take the androgen therapy. Right. Right. Uh, do you have any idea of what that means, those the very fibrotic changes in the breast, what that would mean if they 
were to have some sort of breast screening in the future? Like, does that change what a radi breast radiologist would see in the breast? Would it make it easier to detect something atypical, harder to detect something atypical? That's an interesting question because, you know, depending on the density of the breast, it can be harder to detect certain things mm -hmm. um, by imaging. Um, so, so it may be harder um, given those changes for them to be screened, mm -hmm. you know, if they haven't done breast contouring surgery, um, you know, what are the long-term effects? And I don't know that we have really good data at this point to indicate what are the long-term effects. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the sort of longest patients, um, the longest therapy that patients were on in our cohort, at least was about five years Okay, prior to surgery. So you know, you can imagine if patients are taking it very long term, you know, it's still not really known as far as I know what long term effects that would have. Okay. And I also saw that you had one patient who had an incidental uh, ductal carcinoma in situ. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, so in our cohort, we did have one patient with high grade ductal carcinoma in situ, but we, we had no cases with invasive carcinoma. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because the one patient who had DCIS actually had a history of breast cancer in his father and had been actually undergoing androgen therapy for more than five years. So he subsequently, after this diagnosis, um, had genetic screen, screening, which was negative. Okay. Um, so our, our protocol really doesn't have up until this point really didn't call for things like imaging prior to breast contouring surgery and things right. like that. So that wasn't our normal protocol. So, you know, again, this was only one of our cases. So his history was somewhat more complex and it wasn't entirely clear what factors were at play with this. So again, it's hard to make much out of a relatively small cohort. Um, there was an excellent study by Dr. Ellen East and colleagues at the University of Michigan um, that also examined the clinical pathologic findings in female to male gender affirming breast surgery. Um, and they showed that of their 68 cases, only one had atypia, which was flat epithelial atypia. And there was also another study by Dr. Andrea Hernandez and colleagues at NYU. Um, they actually had 211 cases um, and they found significant atypical findings in six of their cases, or about 2.8%. They also had a comparison group of 273 reduction mammoplasty cases. Mm -hmm. And in that group, they found significant findings actually in 19 or 7% of their oh, wow. cases. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I really do hope that um, more studies are conducted, which I'm sure are currently underway, including the one that Dr. Hung is, is conducting at Beth Israel Deaconess, um, which can really further investigate the incidence of atypical lesions in this patient population um, in order to further sort of investigate and understand the biology behind these sort of lesions or again, you know, what's going on with these patients with androgen therapy right. it for a long time. That's some great background reading for anybody who <laughs> wants to investigate this further. We can all look those studies up. Is there anything else that you would like to share with any of our med student or pathology resident listeners today related to this topic or, 
why you just think pathology is the best career choice. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely. Um, So I I would tell medical students and pathology residents that really what I love the most really about the field of pathology is that there are just so many opportunities to get involved in things that directly impact patient care and management. Um, So taking this study as an example, it really did stem from us wanting to investigate more finding that we had noticed. Um, in order to see if we if we needed to modify our practice to better serve our patient population. Right. Um, so doing projects like this really opened my my eyes to how much of a difference we can make as pathologists. Um, That's I'm great. currently the director of quality assurance and quality improvement um, inside of pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it extremely rewarding to be able to work on finding, you know, quote unquote problems or inefficiencies that uh-huh. we may be having and then try to see how we can do better. So above all, it's, it's really a way to better evaluate how can we better serve our patients to give them the best care possible. Um, So for residents, I would say your residency is such a great opportunity to start exploring all the different facets of our practice. So really do try to get as involved as you can with really whatever you can. Um, And these are all things and experiences that will, will allow you to grow and that you can carry to your own practice down the line as well. That's wonderful. Couldn't have said it any better than myself. I really appreciate your taking time to come on and talk with us today about your study. I think it's really interesting and I'm looking forward to, like you said, more long-term studies coming out for how better to serve our transgender population and their breast health. Yeah, thank you so much again for reaching out on this really important topic. And I think what you guys are doing are great is great too with PathPod. Thanks, (laughs) thanks. It's, It's a lot of fun. Thanks again to Drs. Hang and Toros for coming on PathPod News Edition today. We'll be back next week with another episode focused on LGBTQ plus health. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.